Episode 413, we continue our tour through the default packages that have been installed with a Slackware install. Of course, if you're not running Slackware or even Linux, you can still find most of these packages available for your platform because they're open source. And they're all quite useful to know about because, frankly, there's a lot of software out there. And there's a lot of good software out there that we just kind of overlook because we don't know it exists. And this is an effort to familiarize you and myself sometimes, depending on my background, with uh, what what's available. Often just right on your computer already. It might be installed already and you don't even, you're not even realizing it. Uh, that's certainly been the case for me. Previous episode, we've, we were talking about the GNU-Java compiler. GCJ is the command. GCC-Java is the package name. And there's a lot of um, content in this package, but luckily only about, I don't know, let's say 16 binary executables. So we've gotten through AOT compile ECJ sort of. Did we talk about ECJ yet? ECJ is like GCJ except it's from Eclipse. I don't exactly know why it's in, why it's included in the GNU compiler package. That's kind of unusual. FastJar is a jar utility to create jar files. We did that in the previous episode. So we're going to resume with this package with the next item on this list, which is gapplet viewer. Okay, so that requires a little bit of a background in historical Java. Java no longer uses these um, this this convention, which was called, or at least, yeah, as far as I know, it does not use this convention. There was a thing called an applet, A-P-P-L-E-T. And an applet was when you could you you would write a Java application and then embed that Java application in something else. And a very common something else was the internet, the an HTML page. So you would embed your applet into your HTML page, and people could go there and experience this fun little application that you had written, whether it was a um, a game or a uh, tax form. And apparently the format was just ripe for exploitation and it caused a lot of problems, I think, for, I guess, the internet in a way and also sort of web browsers. We went through a, a time where web browsers would have Java turned off by default, but then inevitably you would have to turn it back on because some government site where you had to go fill out a form for something would use a Java form, and so you'd have to figure out how to get your Java to your browser to talk back, talk to Java again, and 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 then for another while, I, I feel like the operating systems themselves just sort of started, sort of kind of trying to exclude Java as much as possible. Like we're not shipping with Java, and I don't know if that was in reaction to this kind of thing or whether it was just it didn't. It didn't make sense to ship with Java, or maybe I'm not remembering it correctly. I, either way, I, I feel and I, I, I kind of sense that if you lived through that tumultuous time, uh, which wasn't too long ago here, um, but if, if you were aware of that, then you probably remember that. And, and for a lot of people, I feel like it kind of maybe tainted uh, the good name of Java in general. I could be wrong about that, but I, I feel like there might be some hesitance to sort of get involved in Java or think that Java is maybe worth looking into because, well, I remember 
back when Java was right up there with Flash, with just how bad it was and, and how you should avoid it. That kind of sense, that kind of feeling. So that's kind of interesting. Um, that was an that that was the the applet craze or the downfall of applets, I guess. And uh, it is a deprecated interface now. And if you attempt to use G Applet Viewer, it it warns you that it is a deprecated interface. That that's not something that you're supposed to be doing. And it so far has utterly failed for me. I found an old stash of applets of like little demo applets on cs uh, www.cs.stir as in sterling s-t-i-r.ac.uk slash tilde s-b-j slash examples slash java dash examples dash basic there's a bunch of applets on there and for most of them you can view the source code and you can see that um here here's a simple counter using a label. It says a trivial counter applet. Click on the button to count. Well, I don't see a button. It's not loading. Counter zeros when browsing returns to this page. Great. The source. Oh, that 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 one, of course. The one that I choose is the one that happens to not be working uh, for the source. Some kind of bad link. Okay, here's source on, on a different one. It's the, um, I don't know, a different counter one. And it says import java.awt dot asterisk import java dot awt dot event dot asterisk and then finally import java dot applet dot applet and that's the 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 big one that's going to be deprecated and uh because the main class it's not called main but the the class that it it creates counter up down extends the applet class uh, java really doesn't seem to want to do much with it so I was not able to get gapplet viewer to work um, from for me under any circumstance. I, I tried several 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 things. I tried making my own a really simple basic one. Couldn't couldn't get that to run. I tried um, I tried running some of these off of the website. That didn't work. So yeah, I, I think that applets are just so dead now that it's it's not really worth. Um, dwelling too much on the gapplet viewer but gapplet viewer is meant to provide a method for developers to 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 preview their applets without posting them on the internet that was the intent okay next up is gc analyze let's look at man page for gc analyze really quick it's a very good man page GC Analyze analyzes garbage co- analyze garbage collector memory dumps. It prints an analysis of a GC memory dump, that's garbage collector uh, memory dump, to standard out. The memory dumps may be created by calling gnu.gcj.util.gcinfo.enumerate parentheses string name prefix close parentheses from Java code. Memory dump is created on an out-of-memory condition if the thing I just said, gnu.gcjutilgcinfo set oomdump, oh, that's different. Okay, anyway, is called before the out-of-memory occurs. Okay, so um, running this program, for example, will create two files, testdump001 and testdump001.bytes, and they provide a little sample code snippet, which, I mean, that's pretty great i think for a man page to just like tell you exactly what to do that's <laughs> uncommonly that's such a luxury so um i did that i did emacs gc dump test dot java it's important of course to name 
the file the same name as that the the class that it is identifying. So for instance, I could I could just do Emacs test.java and paste in that code. And in fact, let's do that. I'm going to do that right now. Instead of naming this GC dump test, I'm going to just call it test.java because I'm let's pretend like I'm being lazy, not really paying attention. I'm going to paste the code in here. And the code is pretty simple. It's import gnu.gcj.util and import java.util. Public class gc dump test. Static public void main string args. Array list string l equals new array list string 1000. For int equals i, is, as long as i is less than 1500, i++. l.add, this is a string number, and then whatever value i is at. And then gcinfo.enumerate test dump. So there's that gcinfo.enumerate string, um, function that they, that they cited in the, in the, um, man page. Okay, so we have, we have that in a file now. And I could do gcj, because, I mean, this is, you'll recall that this is how we do these things. We do a gcj, uh, to create a, a binary. So we'll do gcj test.java, and sure enough, it gives me an error. It says the public type gc dump test, and that's the class name, must be defined in its own file. Well, what does that mean? It is in its own file. The only stuff, the only thing in test.dump is two import statements and the public class gc dump test. So why is it telling me it needs to be in its own file? Well, what it's really saying, and I wish it would have just, I do wish error messages could just say things in plain, sort of plain English, or choose your language, you know, plain natural language. And I wish it would just say, the file in which GC dump test appears must be named GC dump test.java. Because that's what they're saying. So if I move test.java to GC dump test.java, and then to do GCJ gc dump test.java uh, this is um, uh, I, I have to warn you this is actually going to fail again but not for the same reason gcj gc dump test then well like i say it actually errors out again but this time it's not because of that it is um it's it's a different error it's saying that ld returned one exit status and the reason for that is because it doesn't know and and actually again i, I guess i i do kind of wish that there was some not that I would know how to implement this. The error message, that's easy. That I can, I know how to implement better verbiage in error messages. You just type it differently. You just think of how you speak to anybody who may not even know programming and explain the problem to them. Uh, this sort of thing, I admit this, this is a little bit more complex. I don't know how I would necessarily catch exactly this problem. Although, I mean, we do have to theorize if we can catch the problem, then we should, we ought to be able to identify it and then therefore explain it better to the user. But as I say, that's easier said than done because, I mean, I don't know how to do it. So GCJ, um, well, okay, so the problem here, LD returned one exit, I, I don't know, that's impossible to understand, but maybe if we really, really thought about it, and, I mean, we've, we've encountered this problem before, is, is the short version of this. But there is a little bit of a hint here. There's a little bit of a um, an error cited at CRT 1.0. Don't know what that is. In function underscore start. So 
if you'll think back to the previous episode or, you know, if you know any Java, kind of thinking back to so to problems and, and certainly integrated development environments sometimes can help with this too because they'll they will just tell you what's wrong. Um, the, the the issue here is that Java the the compiler doesn't know where to sort of get started underscore start. It doesn't know where to get started with your application code. It, it sees the code. It just doesn't know where to look to sort of get into the code. And traditionally, um, that would be sort of the 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 sign for that would be a function, no, sorry, a class called main and with uh, string args as the parameters, the arguments, well, the parameters, I guess. Um, so since we don't have that in this sample application, we can override it or we can sort of amend it to say gcj dash dash main equals, and this is a the dash dash main thing is I, I'm pretty sure it's well, actually I guess I could test it main equals hello uh, hello dot c yes there's no such thing as a dash dash main in GCC so this is a GCJ specific uh, option and that is dash dash main equals GC dump test space GC dump test dot Java so we're telling it don't look for a, a class called main when you go looking for a, the main f uh, class look for a class called GC dump test and then we're passing it the file which we know it doesn't know yet but we know that that contains the class GC dump test it's a weird problem because I mean it's, yeah it, it feels like a problem that we could code around but um, there may be a perfectly good reason for sort of enforcing that okay anyway that worked so now we have an a.out file which of course if I do a file a.out, it tells me it's an elf executable, not stripped, debug info turned on, and so on. Okay, so let's run that. And it tells me that GC underscore enumerator saved summary to test dump 001, and it saved the heap contents to test dump 001.bytes. And according to the man page, it says that the memory dump may then be displayed by running gc-analyze. That's the command we're looking at in case um, in case you've forgotten. I almost have forgotten. Uh, gc-analyze, garbage dump, or garbage collector uh, analyze, dash v, probably for verbose, yes. Um, test dump 001. So I'll just run that right now, dash v test dump 001. I am going to pipe it to less because I have a suspicion it's going to be a lot of output. Oh boy, is it. Uh, so this is invoking the nm tool, which we looked at long ago now, probably around episode 398 or, or so. Um, you might remember it as the thing that listed symbols, and I feel like there were there have been a couple of things that have listed symbols, so nm is just kind of one of them. And it's analyzing all the different components of uh, of this code, of this little application. It found four symbols in a.out and zero symbols in a bunch of um, sort of uh, associated dependencies. And then it gives me a memory map, so that's kind of cool. So this is telling me where sort of all the information that gets loaded by this by this application happens to live in memory. Now, none of that makes any sort of difference to me. Like, that doesn't... This is meaningless. I don't care if 
it's stored in 7F245CEB1000 or um, whether it's stored in CFFDCDEF0000 personally. But if this is something that you're looking to know for whatever reason, then this is a great way to get it because you get all the information. It, it goes on for pages and pages. Um, I'm trying to get to something maybe slightly more interesting. Yeah, there's... Um, here, uh, memory usage sorted by description, so there's a total memory usage, the exact size, the count, the size, and the description, and that'll tell you um, by Java, by or uh, by the you know what's using it, um, what kind of sy system calls were invoked, what kind of libraries were invoked. Um, yeah, lots of lots of information here. And then it looks like a hex dump here as well at the very, very end. All objects, yeah. So this is literally showing you the 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 points in memory and and what those what those addresses, I should say, those addresses in memory and what the addresses contain, like exactly what it contains. It's really really cool actually. That's at the very, very sort of end of this this big dump. But there is, for instance, I'm I'm seeing this as 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 we could have seen, you know, as we've seen before in previous episodes using uh, hex dump and and associated applications, the names of which I'm I'm just, they're just not coming to my mind right now. Um, but those those applications, I mean, it shows you the the data, and then it translates it in you know the, that dash dash canonical flag so that you get the sort of translation over on the right. Um, and for instance, right now I'm looking at this is string number 89. This is string number 88. This is string number 88. That repeats a couple of times. And and you'll remember that the code, there's the 86 and 85, 84. I don't know why I said that out of order. Yeah, and I could just scroll down for ages, I guess, and see all kinds of really interesting information that's just hanging out in memory. Um, that, and that is, of course, the domain. Wow, it goes on for a long time. Uh, and that is, of course, the domain of garbage collection. Uh, one, of the, one of the problems of applications is that they, is that they send information into, your, into your, your computer's RAM, and there is very frequently, well, in some cases, there are app, uh, some applications require you, or rather some programming languages require you as the developer to manage those memory spaces yourself. And so when you are done with something that you've dumped into RAM, you, you should go back and clean it up. Um, and, and other programming languages do that ostensibly for you. And of course, after a crash, whether or not that step got completed or not is, is anybody's guess. And so there's the, the, this, this, this whole, that, that scenario, that, that domain is, is called garbage collection, and you'll you'll very frequently see GC, uh, just sort of those two letters in and around programming. That's often an abbreviation for garbage collection, and it's a it's a big deal. It's a big, it's sort of a big um, science within programming languages. It's something that people have to think about, like language designers and and programmers. They have to think about that and. Uh, being able to analyze what gets dumped into RAM from an application is is a pretty neat. That's uh, it's pretty cool. Um, and so GC analyze, I guess. I mean, I'm I'm trying to figure out why 
why GC Analyze exists. And I guess it's just to make all of that, the whole process of, of looking at the, the information, really, really convenient. Because that, that is really convenient. I mean, obviously in real life you wouldn't write your own gcdumptest.java file, but you would, or you could, you could import those GNU Java libraries and then be able to get that information from your own application. Uh, it looks like the test dump 001.bytes, that's the, um, you know, that's the kind of the big binary f file containing all this information, um, is 9.8 megabytes. And just to be clear, that's from a, uh, what is it? I don't know, like a, a f maybe a, an eight line Java. Yeah, it's 14 lines with all this white space, with copious amounts of white space. Uh, so that's, that's quite a large, it's quite a large uh, file, really. Um, and I'm going to delete it now. Trash it. Um, okay, so that was GC Analyze. Pretty cool. GCJ is, of course, the, the compiler. We already went over that. So next in line is GC-DBTool, which is a tool to create database, a little database detailing uh, where class files are located so that you can then use an ahead-of-time compiler to, to to process your code when your ahead-of-time compiler has no knowledge of your compiler. So this is kind of a little bit of prep work that you might do for a shared object or something, a shared object file, to tell your ahead-of-time compiler, such as AOT compile, which we went over in the previous uh, episode, where to find all the components that it's going to need. So that's gcj-dbtool. Um, I, I don't really have a great example, like a complete workflow for this one myself, um, but certainly sort of the, uh, you, you can, you can kind of, you can do it and you can then see what you've done. So for instance, let's say that I've got a file, uh, a folder containing my.jar, which we built in the previous episode. Well, we could use gcj-main equals, I think this one is actually called main, um, my.jar. And that creates an a.out that if I do a.out, hello Java world, cool, that works. And now we can use gcj, I mean, this isn't actually, this wouldn't be the use case really. You wouldn't point to the, the thing that you've, that you've already compiled. Uh, you would be pointing probably to an object file, but that seems like a lot of work right now to try to build something into just a .so file just for this. So gcj-dbtool-f as in file, my dot, let's call it gcjdb, because that seems to be an accepted extension, and then point to the file that you want to add to your database. So in this not very good example, that would be a.out. Uh, that didn't work. What am I missing? Oh, I forgot to create the file. So we'll, we'll call the database file um, my dot, oh no, that is, that's okay, that's what I created, uh, and then I want to point it to my jar, my dot jar, and then again, in this bad so I've got gcj-dbtool-f as in file, my.gcjdb, and then my.jar, and then in this bad example, a.out, because um, because why not? And now if I want to use gcjdbtool to dash l as in list my.gcjdb, it tells me that the capacity is 100, the size is 1, and the elements contained in this are uh, this 
this uh, there's this randomized string that points to slash home slash class two slash demo slash gcdb slash a dot out. So it knows exactly where this this file that normally gcj would know where to find, but in this in, you know the reason you'd be using gcj-db tool is because you whatever you're using doesn't it isn't going to invoke gcj to learn of that path so you could build your own uh database kind of telling um your your compiler where the important components are located so for instance aod aot-compile if you recall we did in the previous episode there's a dash capital c or a dash dash gcj so that you can pass over to it the location of gcj and there's also a dash capital d as in database dash dash db tool uh, and here you can give it the path to G- gcj dash db tool so if you needed for instance to tell it to compile something you didn't have gcj around for some reason you did have gcj dash db tool you could reference that um, you could also reference it with other tools. So that's what that does. I just don't have a good use case for it myself. Um, I've never, I've never used it, never needed it. Um, that which doesn't mean anything. Understand? I'm not saying that in, from a place of experience. I am saying that from a place of inexperience. I, I have never come up against that issue that I've had to turn to um, GCJ-DB tool to solve. Next up is GC. No, yeah, GCJH. This is a cool one. I mean, again, don't have a use case for it, but this is pretty cool. Um, so you remember from the previous episode, maybe, that we could create bytecode classes. And again, bytecode byte is, you know, kind of, it's it's essentially machine code for Java, which is different than machine code or machine language, whatever, for a CPU, right? We we talked about compiling back in 3.98 and how it had you had, we take these human con- constructs of of programming languages and we transform them down into stuff that makes no sense to us but makes a lot of sense to electro- electrical switches, uh, digital switches uh, that talk in binary and are literally running our computers. They're they're the CPU chips. And they need instructions, and so we know how to instruct them with little signals, and that's what we get when we've compiled something down. That's an ELF binary or or whatever, whatever you know, depending on your platform. But it's it's all at the end of the day, it's it's essentially talking the same language to the CPU. It's just a machine language that you and I couldn't really write ourselves. So we. I mean, I guess we could, but I mean, wouldn't want to, um, and so it gets compiled down. But Java is, of course, something that it knows how to talk to the CPU. It has been compiled specifically for your platform, such that all the Java code that you throw at it doesn't need to know. Like, now nobody needs to talk about machine language. That's already taken care of. Java and the CPU have consulted. They've talked to each other. They've come to an agreement. They're handling that. All we have to worry about is how to talk to Java. Well, we know how to talk to Java. We write Java code. Now, even that Java code, though, isn't interpreted word for word. That would be inefficient. It gets compiled down into bytecode, which talks to that Java sort of imaginary virtual machine, as it were, the sort of runtime. Um, and so that's a, a it's bytecode. And we generated that, if you'll recall, with gcj dash C, capital C, and we pointed it to, for instance, main.java. 
and if I do an ls, now I have a main.class, and if I do file main.class, it tells me that it is compiled Java class data. Now, gcjh says that it generates header files from Java class files. And then it goes on to say in the description, the gcjh program is used to generate header files from class files. It can generate both CNI and JNI header files, as well as stub implementation files, which can be used as a basis for, for implementing the required native methods. It is similar to Java, J-A-V-A-H, but has different command line options and defaults to CNI. So there's a lot there to decode, um, ironically. So um, CNI, JNI. So CNI is a compiled native interface yeah compiled native interface which is a way to write java native methods functions methods using c++ so c and i think c++ targeting java and j and i is java native interface which would be i guess for a java programmer i imagine would be a lot more sort of natural writing java for java rather than writing c++ for java but gc H generates these header files defaulting to CNI and um, sort of sells that as a feature. Like for them, that is a, a good thing. Um, I'm not saying, you know, whether it's good or bad. I am simply, I'm just putting this all into context. I, I have no opinion on the matter. Um, Java, I had never heard of before. Like Java H, I've never heard of that before. M maybe that's before my time. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm before my time, I mean before I knew, like, before I got involved at all in Java. Um, but but this is a cool application, I think. It's it's kind of neat. I mean, I don't think I'll ever use it. But um, So we can create the main.class, gcj-c main Java, and then we get the Java bytecode. And now I can do gcjh main.class, and it spits out a file called main.class. H and sure enough, it looks like it's a C++ header file with includes and pragma and um, all kinds of programming things. Um, that is essentially it doesn't really yeah it's just I mean because I'm using this fake little hello world do nothing application. It's there's not a whole lot to see here, but it is cool I think to see something taken from compiled bytecode to plain text header file. That, that to me, it's not like my, it's not as if though my mind can't comprehend the process. It's actually not that big of a deal if you really think about it. Like the compiled bytecode Java is easily understood by Java and this is a Java utility. So, I mean, it all, it all makes sense that it all sort of unravels into this, but this just one of those, that's a conversion that I, I don't think I would have ever really thought... I don't know. I didn't know that was a thing. And I think that's pretty cool. So GC8, uh, GCJH. Very cool if for whatever reason you need that sort of thing. And I don't. I, I, I don't know whether I ever will. I, I don't know that I won't. But certainly um, it is kind of neat to see that as, as something that exists. Okay. Now it's GIJ which is a, um, oh, I thought there was a man page for this. I'm sure there's a man page for it. There it is. GNU interpreter for Java bytecode. 
Now, I have to admit, I couldn't get this to work uh, today when I was recording. I, I saw it work once, and I don't I don't exactly know what I've done to make it not work for me right now, but it's not really that exciting. The, the long and short of it is that you use GCJ with the capital C com- uh, option, rather, uh, to compile out to bytecode. We've done that very recently. So then you just do J, uh, GIJ, GNU Interpreter... Java, G-I-J, and then main.class in, in this in this instance, because that's what it's called. And then it should run that code for you, so straight out of the bytecode file. I'm not sure why that's not working for me right now, but I don't feel like it's worth my time to troubleshoot it, to be honest, because I'm just, I don't see myself using um, quite quite a lot of these, these compiling tools. I, I don't see myself necessarily using anytime soon. Uh, and that's not to say I'll never use them, or that you shouldn't use them. It's just that I haven't been using them, and so I'm not, I'm not too concerned about them. Um, okay, so next up is gjar, and this is, um, I would say a lot of overlap with fastjar. This, ha- it, it does exactly the same thing. Uh, well, maybe not exactly, but I mean, it does essentially the same thing. Um, it, it uses the same, uh, flags, the options, dash c to create, dash t to list, dash x to extract, dash f to point to the file, so this is exactly like FastJar. If you want to build a JAR file, you could use FastJar, or you could use GJAR. There's also a GJAR signer, which, as you can imagine, is the component that allows you to digitally sign and verify JAR files that have digital signatures associated with them. I've never done that myself, and um, it, it seems like a really, really, really useful thing to have, and I even kind of wonder how common this is. It seems like an important element to have when distributing potentially suspicious executable modules, and you just don't hear all that much about it. I mean, maybe it's good that we don't hear about it because maybe it's just working, but I kind of, I kind of doubt it. I, I have a feeling it's something that you probably have to sort of invoke manually um, to to verify things. But G- GJAR signer lets you digitally sign your jar files. Gjava H is the Java H command referenced by GCJH, which was the application that generates header files from class files. So we've already done that. Some of these, I guess I should look really quick. So is Gjar, for instance, not linked to fastjar? No, apparently... It is not. It is a completely separate entity, from what I can tell. Yeah, there is interesting, interesting number of overlapping functions here, or commands, really. But that's okay. Um, no worries. So here's the description of gjdoc, which is the next command in our list. gjdoc can only be used, uh, can be used in two ways, as a standalone documentation tool, or as a driver for a user-specified docklet. I will admit I'd never heard of a docklet before. However, I do know that Java is, I, I would say, pretty darned good with documentation efforts. Uh, I, it could be something that is everywhere, and I'm just not aware of it, but I do feel like Java docs and the, the, the structured format of comments in Java are, are very well publicized as it were, to uh, new Java developers, programmers, whatever. Um, and and yeah, I feel like it's kind of a well-supported thing, which I like. 
which I like a lot. I'd never heard of GJ Doc either, and um, again, I, it may simply be because the tools that I am using are taking care of all of this sort of behind the scenes for me so that I don't have to worry about it. But here's the idea. A little bit like Doxygen, which we covered in, um, I don't know, three or four episodes ago, maybe. A little bit like Doxygen. You locate a directory with a bunch of Java files in it. You point this tool at that at that place, and it generates documentation for it with a couple of fancy templates and so on. So I'm going to make a directory. I've, I've got a pre-existing project here with a bunch of comments in it. I didn't want to just do a, a demo or like use a fake file for this because I want actual content. So not not that I actually know how much how many comments are in this demo or this sample project. But anyway, uh, I'm going to make a directory called docs. How about that? And then I'm going to do j gj doc dash dash. Oh boy, I think it's um source source path yep no so no not dash dash just dash s which stands for what does that stand for source path yep that's what i thought okay source path and that's going to be dot slash src that's where the files are i know after a couple of there it's it's nested within some subdirectories to account for java's packaging structure but that's that's okay dash all is apparently experimental, but it will ensure that it processes all valid Java source files found in the source path. And then dash D for directory, probably, or destination. And that will, of course, be in this directory that I just created called docs. So I run that. It processes a, a bunch of stuff. And if I look in the docs directory, it looks like, yeah, it looks like there's been content generated. And I guess I could open up, let's open up the index file here. Brilliant. It's simple. It's not fancy like Doxygen, like in the look. You could theme it your any way you want. But this looks very, very familiar to me. Just having done the same thing with Doxygen, this is exactly the same stuff. So if I click on app, there's documentation for the class, uh, for the app class. And it's an instance, or it's a extension of JFrame implementing action listener, item listener, key listener, and so on. Yep, this is, um, this is really, it lists all the overrides, all the, all the function or methods, whatever they're called in Java. It's actually really, really nice. I, I almost, in a weird way, prefer this look to Doxygen, the default Doxygen. Not for any good reason, it's just, it's kind of, um, it's kind of simple and, and, uh, minimal. I kind of like it. Yeah, it's really nice. It's a really neat tool. And, and like I say, I've been I've been really pleased with how front and center Java appears to put documentation. It really does seem like Java wants you to care about documentation. Now, again, is that any different from any other programming language? I don't know. I know that Python has a, a relatively good push towards better documentation, especially with their Sphinx project. So... Maybe maybe there's a real similarity there, and I, I remember when I was working on Python at an old old job, uh, it was something, you know, we, we adopted, I think, Google-style comments. That's what everyone, that, that's what, that was the big deal. It was the Google-style comments, and you would, you would put in the comments just like you do on, in Java, for Javadocs. You put in, like, what parameters it takes, what it return, what's it, what it is expected to return, 
and I think a brief description, maybe, maybe not. But yeah, it's 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 good. Is my point. This is very good. I'm I'm impressed. And J G J J G J Doc is, that makes it well just as easy as Doxygen. I mean, you heard the command that I just entered, and that was with l- no preparation whatsoever. I mean, I I copied the file the folder over. I had some degree of faith that there were meaningful comments in the code. And even if there hadn't been, I, I believe gjdoc would at least list the functions and probably auto-document the basics, like the inputs and the outputs and things like that. So even even in that sense, I think there would be a lot of use for this. Pretty pretty cool. All right, let's talk about... I'm, I'm, I'm keenly aware at this point, as I'm sure you are as well, that we have not taken a coffee break yet. I'm really trying to get through GCC in this episode. I don't know if it's going to happen. I still have 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12 to go, and then we still have GCC Objective-C to go. We're not there yet, though, so let's do G-Key-Tool. G-Key-Tool is a cryptographic um, private key public certificate um, tool chain, I guess. It, okay, let's let's look down at the bottom here of the, the man page, uh, or info page, but the info info just generates the, uh, renders the man page. 0.99.1-pre is the release number of this tool. There are at least, there's at least one thing in here, that, yeah, that says not implemented yet. I don't know how important that is. Um, my, my point is I, I don't know how commonly used this tool is. And I do get the feeling, personally, that this isn't quite what I would think of as being unique. Uh, this this just... So it, the description is, Cryptographic credentials in Java environment are usually stored in a key store. The Java SDK specifies a key store as a persistent container of two types of objects, key entries and trusted certificates. The security pool, uh, tool key tool is a Java-based application for managing those types of objects. Um, so this is a key generation and uh, verification command, m- much as you would see with GPG or probably OpenSSL or NSS or Kerberos or you know any number of um, of tools provided for, for for maintaining and tracking digital certificates of of one kind or another. So I don't know how essential it is for this tool to exist. I'm not saying that it's definitely not. I'm just I'm just wondering if it is redundant at all to other tools that you may have on your system already. Um, I messed around with it a little bit, so you can do sort of an, a, a really simple G key tool dash gen key dash G E N K E Y. It prompts you for a password uh, for a key store password. Sorry. It prints your response to the terminal, so don't do it when someone's looking over your shoulder. It enters your enters a password for uh, it, it prompts you for a password for your the key that you are now generating. Again, prints your password to your terminal. It echoes it back out to the terminal, so don't do it when someone's looking. And 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 then clear your screen afterwards. And, and by clear your screen, I mean like you know. I don't know. I guess close the the terminal because I mean it's it's there on your screen. Scroll up, it's still there. So uh, that that's that was weird. That caught me off guard quite a lot. And then um, and then it asks you other information like a common name for um, 
how you want this key to be identified. The organization, organizational unit, the locality that you live in, uh, the state you live in, the country that you live in, and so on. It creates your key sort of more or less silently, doesn't really alert you where it's getting saved to. Again, I felt that was a little bit strange. I, I kind of like how um, maybe it's just because I'm used to these tools, but SSH Keygen and GPG both kind of, I, I feel like they tell you where you're, where the key is getting saved to. But I guess because this is kind of a... Well, I mean, so is GNU PG. Anyway, I felt it was a little bit odd for them not to really assert or, or reassure you where where everything has been stored, but that's okay. Uh, to see your 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 key store, your, your password store, or your... Um, yeah, your, your key store, you can do G, G key tool dash list and enter your password. Oh, and, and when you enter your password to decrypt your, your key tool, your, your password, uh, your <laughs> key store, it prints it out to the terminal. That's so weird that they do that. Um, I mean, that's a real, that's a real, that's really weird. Um, the, the key store type is GKR, store provider, GNU crypto, Key store contains one entry. Uh, the alias name is my key. Creation timestamp is just now. Entry type is a key entry. The certificate fingerprint MD5 is provided to you, and and so you have you have a key. You've you've created a key. What you choose to do with that key is up to you. Um, I think that probably you could then use this for things like signing your jars, for instance. That would be probably the obvious use case for that. Um, and and it is it's a cryptographic tool, so it's got a lot a lot of different functions. You can control things like the um, algorithm type, the the size of the key, and so on. Um, but I think the the expected use case here, probably like realistically, is going to be to use this with the jar signer, which um, in on on this system, of course, is G jar signer. So I I kind of skipped over that earlier, but we may as well actually use it now that we have a key with which to sign things. So I'll go to my demo directory. I'll find a a jar. Here's my dot jar which is, I believe, java-jar, my.jar, hello java world, yep. Uh, and then we'll just, we'll do gjarsigner, and then dot slash my.jar, and then the key name, which I believe was just my key, because I didn't give it, like, a, a nice alias or anything. So let's try that. It asks me to enter my password, my, my key store password, and I guess it's done. So let's uh, try to verify that now. ggjarsigner-verify-verbose-certs on my.jar. Jar is not signed. No signature files found. Okay, that didn't work. So uh, if I do gkeytool-list again, it tells, and enter my password, it tells me that there are now zero entries in my password, my, my key store. So whatever I just did, trying to sign my jar, apparently deleted my um, my key store. I have a feeling that's not expected behavior. So I'll do this again. G key tool self cert alias bogus dash alias bogus. Enter the key store password and it says that the alias must be oh I did self cert. I didn't I didn't mean self cert. Sorry I meant keygen. G key tool dash Keygen dash alias bogus. There we go. And that doesn't seem to gen key. Wow. 
took me three times. Okay, there we go. Now I'm back into it. So key password for bogus, I'll just do this. And then the name, I'll just keep typing in the word bogus until I get a new prompt. City bogus, okay, state, state, okay. All right, so now if I do list again, G key tool dash list. All right, I've got one entry again, and it is the bogus key that I just created. Now I happen to know that if I attempt to create, if I sign that jar again, it'll just delete this entry because I've, I've already done this a couple of times. So that's clearly not the right, the, the path to success. So I thought, well, you know, it's probably that I need to generate a certificate. And so I try G key tool dash self cert, that is to generate a self-signed certificate, but it has to be associated with an existing key. So for that, I'll do dash alias bogus. That way we know what key to use when generating this certificate. Hit return enter my key store password, key tool error, java.lang.illegalstateexception not encrypted. And if I do a G tool, key tool dash list again, my key has been removed. It's gone. Bogus is dead. So that's a bug. And I have a feeling I'm going to go ahead and trash home slash clatu uh, slash dot key store, which is the... Um, the location that it is actually storing all that information in. Now you know. Um, so, uh, .keystore I'm getting rid of. Um, I, I have a suspicion that this is a problem with my mixed Java environment. Um, I, I don't, again, I don't use the tools here in GCC-Java. I'm using the ones that I got from Adopt OpenJDK. They're, they're more up-to-date, and uh, I'm using them for real real-life things. So, I have a feeling this bug is... is coming down to to sort of that that mixed environment and on the one hand I could attempt to uh, work around it but um, I think you get the idea uh, key tool is meant to to generate your certificates and your keys well your key and then your certificate which you then use to you you use with jar signer to jar, sign a jar so that it has a digital a digital signature associated with it if anyone on the other end, you know your 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 users want to verify your identity in any way they can take a look at that dig digital signature and if they they recognize it then they can trust it and of course it might not really be the user themselves it might be the OS or some application whatever so that's 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 what key tool and jar g jar signer are for next up is g native to ascii it's a converter um the the man page on slackware hasn't been written yet um literally it says to be written so this is, a, again, another early version uh, of this tool. It's like 0 0.99.1 or whatever, pre. And uh, the, the use is pretty pretty simple. I, I don't quite know why it's in this package. I don't know the, the, the where it fits in. But um, you can think of, like, icon for something like that. So, for instance, um, if I just create a Unicode file, and by Unicode file I mean a plain text file with a Unicode character in it, and then gnative to the number two ASCII, A-S-C-I-I, -I, unicode.txt, I get as the out as the output, there it is, um, backslash U2714. Looks good to me. Okay, next up, uh, and that's all gnative to, to, to ASCII does. Uh, next up is gorbd. This has uh, something to do with Corba support, and Corba is, of course, the, I don't remember the 
acronym Common Object Request Broker Architecture. It's not really a sentence exactly, is it? It kind of is, I guess. Um, so Corba is tries to take an object-oriented approach to to sort of um, stringing applications together. That's what I'll say. Um, it may be it's 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 a lot more I'm sure nuanced than that, but let's let's say that that's what it does. Um, so it's it's trying to integrate sort of distributed software in a way. I, I don't know how relevant it is these days, honestly. I mean, even even um, writing stuff like in Quarkus for the cloud, you know, for K native stuff. I I don't feel like I've heard much about that lately so i'm not i'm not too sure how how exciting it is but um gorbd and uh let's see what is it gorbd and i think it's gt name serve so i don't know how to use them and their man pages aren't 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 written uh yet the i guess the this is a great point of this is, I think, is a good example of kind of one of the struggles, I think, of open source development. Um, I I was looking around online if, if, if for for any kind of documentation on these, any kind of useful documentation on these two tools, GORBD and GT Nameserve, came across a mailing list post from I don't know when, from 18 years ago? No, surely not. 14 years ago. Just 14 years. And in the mailing uh, post, someone says, "Hey, I've, I discovered these new these new applications um, th th that are being distributed with GCC Java. Is this intentional?" And the maintainers or the the developers rather get back and say, "Yep, these are these are intentional. And here's what they do: GJAR, G Java replacements for FastJAR and GCJH, GNative to ASCII standard JDK program. We also have JV convert, which is similar but different. Ideally, blah blah blah. So he gives this this person gives a a one line description. I mean, not not all of them are great one line descriptions, but they're they're one line descriptions. And then at the end of the email, it says we probably don't have docs for all of these. Looking into this on my to-do list, but it keeps getting bumped down. Which, I mean, this is something that happens to us all, right? But the I think the funny thing is that the... the and, and we've all done this, I feel. like the But this person took the time to type the, the required information into an email. And all it really takes is to have just typed those things into the man page file under the synopsis and then at least you would have had at least a description of these things in the man pages and instead the time and effort got spent on an email to one person now here's that that's the grim look at it right like i say we've all done this in fact i'm doing it right now i'm talking about it instead of actually just going to the source code and contributing right so no one is blameless here i'm not trying to say that this was a poor choice. I'm just saying this is the conundrum that we're all up against, kind of related to the the, the, the mystery of, of how open source gets done. And and I feel like this is so tough because you you do answer questions sometimes and you just realize, well I've just answered one person on the internet. Like what's what's the what what would have been a better way or a bigger way for me to have done that? But the conundrum is like well, the whole internet didn't ask you. Like, this one person asked you. And so you're answering that one person. And what's the next step? Is it to, to contribute back and put that into the man page text? I don't know. Because these aren't great descriptions, to be fair. 
and how complex is it to get it into the man page text? Um, certainly for me, I would have to go find the source code and then clone it and submit it to someone, figure out who to who to push it back to, and so on. So yeah, it's it's a it's a weird problem that we have in open source. The cool thing is though that these mailing lists are publicly archived, and I think that's one of the major major things about open source is that it's out there. It it is to varying degrees useful but it is out there. Okay, grep jar. This is a really cool one as you can probably guess from the name. So, um grep jar greps through a jar file. Pretty easy to do. You do grep jar -e let's I guess uh, manifest maybe that that ought to be found. And it's not, of course not because uh this isn't find jar. This is grep jar. Okay. Grep jar -e how about the word main? M-A-I-N, my jar. There we go. So now that has found the, the term main with a capital M in metainf slash manifest.mf main dot dash class main and also in main dot class main. So perfect. That works as expected. And I and I guess I could probably look for something else like hello and it finds that in main dot class. Hello Java world. So it's even parsing that byte code and finding the strings in that. So that's pretty cool. So that's a really useful one, grep jar. Let's look at grmic. Um, this is a it generates stubs for remote method invocation. Um, so that's rmi remote method invoca invocation. Um, this is not complete. This is not a, a complete application yet. Uh, it does have a better man page than some of the others. But there is just there is a note here that says that this is not compatible with JDK's GR, GRMIC. Um, so you have to be aware of that, I guess, if you're swapping one with the other. And once again, I'm just not sure the the usefulness of a lot of these things because I just don't know how um, how really useful replacing the existing tools actually are right now because it is open source. I I feel like maybe, and this is just me guessing. I kind of feel like maybe this is th these are almost artifacts of a time when the future of Java as an open source project was a lot less clear possibly and now that it's um a little bit you know we we have a little bit more um certainty about where Java is headed I feel so maybe these just don't seem as important to me but anyway um grmic uh, generates a stub and a skeleton class for remote objects. Well, I happen to know from error messages uh, from RMIC that that's deprecated. Uh, RMIC from Adopt OpenJDK tells me that the generation and use of skeletons and static stubs for JRMP is deprecated and to migrate away from using RMIC, or in this case, GRMIC. So this is not a useful tool anymore. G-serial-ver, however, next in line, is useful. It, well, actually, I don't know what it's used for necessarily, but I know what it, it, it refers to, and it is a useful thing. So serialization in Java is a technique whereby you tell a, a class or a method that you are writing to return well you it's not a return but you're, you're telling it to serialize something some data which that doesn't mean anything right so it means to take the process the data that you want to get out of the the method or the class whatever and place it on disk somewhere or on a network somewhere as an object 
as kind of a, a file system object. And then from a separate class, a separate Java class, you can read from that object and get that data into your into that class. So it is it it's it's a very sort of intuitive in a way method of of passing data from one class to another through external means. And it's it's kind of crazy that it works, but it does. So for instance, you could have a class that returns um, maybe the name of the uh, of the podcast and the episode number. So you, you could create like a public string um, title, public um, uh, integer int uh, number, and or epnum, whatever, and then you could serialize that data. So you're, you're using your application, your pretend application, and you tell it GNU World Order, episode 413, and the, the class that establishes that, that accepts input from the user, serializes that input and gives it a location within the file system. And then your other class reads from that location, imports the title, GNU World Order, and the epnum, 413, and, I don't know, does something else. Posts the episode to the internet or something. I don't know why you would have that set up, but you get the idea. That's serialization, and it depends on the class implementing java.io serializable interface. The, it's java.io.serializable. And all of the classes, or all of the fields in that class, of course, must be serializable. I don't know what what wouldn't be serializable. I have not run up against that myself yet. Um, I mean, something marked... Something transient would not be would not be serializable, but I, I've not I, I I've never needed to serialize data and run into that issue myself. I mean, not that I've had to serialize data um, often. I've only done it in theory. So um, we'll do it now in theory. Uh, well, actually, we won't because this is just about serial ver. So serial ver can be demonstrated quite easily uh, in about I don't know maybe three lines of code. So let's see where am I? I'm in my demo. So I'm going to create a um, serializable thing called, what shall I call this? Serializeme.java. And I'm going to make a public class, and I'm going to call it Serializeme. And it implements serializable. So I should probably import java.io.serializable. There we go. And then a brace, and then private static final long serial version UID. That is the um, the marker that is used. Serialize version UID. And we'll just call it, uh, I guess we'll call it 413, because that was the example I came up with. Not very good example, but an example. Anyway, okay. So I've got serializeme.java. So we need to get this out to be a class. So that'll be seed... Uh, gcj dash capital C and we'll pass it to serializeme.java and that processes it and creates a file called serializeme.class. Now this this is a little bit tricky um, but the way that we can extract this serialize UID is we do g serialize no sorry g serial ver space and then we have to well maybe I'll do it maybe the wrong way first. Yeah, let's do this. So, g serialize or serial ver serialize me dot class. Okay, so it says serial ver class serialize me dot class not found. Well, that's crazy. 
we happen to know that we have a serialize me class because we, we wrote it just moments ago. What's the problem? Well, the problem is that gserialver, as with a couple of different um, Java tools uh, that we've encountered so far, doesn't actually want the name of the file. It actually just wants the the class, which feels almost wrong because when you're doing stuff at the terminal, you you can always specify stuff by absolute or relative path, right? I mean, that's just how it's done. Well, for this tool, no, it doesn't want that. It wants to know where your classes, the class that you're referring to, where is that stored, and then what's what's the class itself. So it doesn't actually care about the file. It will do that work for you. So what I'll do is gserialver-classpath-backtick pwd backtick so that's going to point it to this current directory and then i happen to know that the the class that i want to to look at is serialize me typing that out but i'm leaving off the dot class i'm just just giving it the class name it will find the file to which that belongs because the file is here in the class path so i hit return and it says serialize me static final long serial version uid 413L. The L is there because it's it's a static, uh, what was, it's a long integer anyway, um, static final long, so it, it appends the L at the end of the number. I probably should have appended that myself, but I forgot. Okay, so that's, that's serial ver. As I said, I, I don't exactly know the use case for that. It does kind of feel like one of those tools that maybe is being used by something else, but I guess, I guess I could also imagine you know, troubleshooting, bug testing, that kind of thing. You want to know what, what a class is reporting for its unique identifier. Well, now you can extract that with gserialver. Now, next in line is gtnameserve, but we're going to skip it because that's got everything to do with Corba, and I don't know what's going on with Corba. I don't think it's actually an active thing anymore, so I'm, I'm just not going to bother with that one. jcf slash dump prints information about a Java class file. I'm going to assume that it's going to want a class path, and then I'm going to assume that it wants the same thing, sort of serialize me, for instance, without the class on it. That gives me a bunch of information. It gives me reading.class from home clatu demo serialize me dot class minor version 0, major version 49, access flag 0x21, public super, interfaces count 1, implements java.io.serializable, fields 1, that's true, because remember, I just made one private step final long that was the only field in that class field name it gives me is serial version uid private static final descriptor long attribute constant value length 2 value long 413 and so on so it, it gives me a lot of information about that class and that's just by pointing it at that class it's pretty cool um i could see that being useful I, again i don't know that i need it myself right now i could definitely see that kind of for a quick overview of something that maybe you're not familiar with or maybe you just can't quite remember the details of or just you just want the executive summary why not it seems really really nice JV convert is next, and it is a conversion tool, as the name would suggest. It does encoding from one thing to another, so it even cites it in the description. It says, it is similar to the Unix iconv utility. So that's what it does. You give it a file that is encoded in one way, you ask it for the file encoded in some other way, and it dumps that out for you, and that's it. It says, um, it's the, the syntax is just JV convert your options and then your input and your output file. 
your options being things like dash dash from and then the name of the input encoding and then dash dash to and then the name of the output encoding. I think probably the right use case would be a Windows user has sent you a file that for some reason your Unix system cannot deal with. I, I imagine JV Convert could then do the adjustments to make it compatible. And last but not least in the Java package, we have rebuild-gcj-db. This is in the same domain as the db tool um, command from earlier. It takes output from the AOT compile process where you're ahead of time compiling things, but you need to generate a database so that your system knows where all of its components are stored, this would this would help you manage that database, specifically rebuild it into one big database so that you didn't have lots of different databases from different compile jobs. Again, this isn't really something that I do, so I don't know a whole lot about it, and um, it, it would probably take quite some thinking to come up with a believable or even a basic example of how to do that. I mean, I guess it would be like a hello world application that you would then compile and dump out into a shared object, and then uh, you would need to compile something against that, I guess. I'm not really sure. So yeah, anyway, that's the GCJ database, and if I ever if I ever use it and fall in love with it, I will absolutely do an entire episode about it. But for now, that brings us to a close. That brings us to the end of the GCC-Java package. And I know you're thinking that we that it's a real pity we didn't get through GCC-Objective-C. We could have gotten through it all, but I took too much time on all of the other things. Well, hold on. We're done. We're actually through GCC. Because if you look in the GCC package, GCC-Objective-C or Obj-C package, you'll realize that there's, there's no binary executables there. So we are actually finished. There's some libraries and some include files, but there's nothing for me to talk about because we're going over the binaries and there is no binary in that package. So we are done. GDB is up next. Next episode. I guess I could say a couple of things about Objective-C. I've got limited experience with Objective-C. I had to learn it at one point for an old, 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 old job. And it was... Oh, uh, actually, add one more old on there. Um, and... And it was it was bad. It was horrible. Uh, I mean, the experience was horrible. Um, I it could have just been that I was so new to programming that that just wasn't the right time. Uh, so I don't want to say anything about like the design of Objective C. There there are quirks about it. Like you can use variables before you declare them or something weird like that. Like there's there's some interesting things in there that you know later I'm looking at and thinking oh, that that's kind of interesting maybe, but. I'm not sure how I feel about it, um, because I haven't used it in ages. And um, either way, today the reality is that most Objective-C out there that you're going to find is for Mac, because that's 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 the platform that uses Objective-C, really, is, is Apple Mac. So you, you might be able to find some Objective-C code out there that's open source, maybe. I mean, you can. It's out there. Um, but most of it is only going to work on Mac, and it's it's very geared towards that. And I mean, it's code, so you could you could grab something and then try to re-implement the missing libraries, and go through all that. But I mean, we're not. This is a completely different matter than just a casual. Let's see if we can compile Objective C with GCC. Yes, you can, but it is it is not easy. It's not really there. There's not really a um not not a market, but there's not like a there's not a user base there, really, as far as I know. 
I mean, yes, you can you can certainly find a couple of places like the um, Window Maker desktop. I would imagine uses some amount of Objective C. The Etoile desktop environment that I, I think is basically pretty well stalled now that probably uses Objective C. But other than those two projects, I, I'm, I think you'd be hard pressed to find. A, a, an open source community using Objective C in any real sense, and even those two, I'm not a hundred percent sure about. Um, I I feel like they are, but I I could very well be wrong. I haven't looked at the code base in ages for really either of them. I have looked at them because I was always curious as to the relationship of those projects, and um, and you know like Objective C and 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 the the libraries from from that got open sourced from Next and so on. But um, yeah, it's just not really something that's super active. And and I don't see the point, to be honest. I really don't. So no Objective-C, but it's not my fault. There's just no binary there. Next time we will talk about GDB, the GNU debugger. Talk to you then. listening to the GNU World Order AugCast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as AugCast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at klatu at member.fsf.org. That's klatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time. a great future, they all agree, but would make the worst husband on record.